Hello everyone, it's July 17th, 2018. This week a crew dragon arrives at the Cape and a company in Beijing is working on a methane-powered orbital rocket. Both should be flying by 2020, but I have my doubts. The only certainties in space flight are delays and without further delay, liftoff. And we have cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 167 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. Good morning, David. Good morning. So why not? Hey, you know what we always do? You always tell us about what you got cooking, literally. So <laughs> you are such a gourmand, and I just wanted to use that word. So uh, what do you have in the crock pot today? Well, so, yeah, so it's not it's not chili, right? Because chili to me is spelled, yeah, C-H-I-L-L-I, and that's uh, that's like beans and ground beef. And I'm making actual, I'm making carne adobada, which is pork shoulder cut into chunks and then mixed up with uh, a ground chili pepper paste with garlic and bay leaves and all that good stuff. And then I'm going to put it in tamales later today. And so my house smells really good and I have not eaten breakfast and it's making me a little distracted. Yeah, that's that's got to be torturous. I mean, at least even I have like a bagel, which is about it. <laughs> um, but you haven't eaten anything? You just got up and, I mean, you've had, have you had? coffee i have not put anything in my mouth other than water wow okay and it's 9 30 and i'm uh a little shaky so let's get this episode done so, so i can go eat breakfast <laughs> yeah i guess uh before your blood sugar crashes oh right? no that's horrible isn't that a thing or yeah that's a thing i haven't i haven't had that happen in in years but yeah i know exactly what that feels like and it's horrible. yeah all right so let's get a move on then with this week in space flight history uh i see we have like one winner and then a bunch of partial winners so i guess they missed yeah something. we have a bunch of correct answers but only one person told me why the clue applied and in this case i was kind of i didn't really say it so i mean it's whatever <laughs> It is what it is. Sorry, guys. Partial credit is still credit. Just let's say that uh, full credit is fuller credit than usual. So this week in spaceflight history, the winner is Chubby, Arisen from the Dead. And partial credit goes to Jay, Mad Brenner, Kieran Thompson, Burt Callio, Cow Champagne, and Foamcast Radio. And Dylan D. No, I did not have a stroke. Uh, Bert just has a cow and a champagne emoji. So I figured I had to pronounce it. So the clue this week was Dusty Rolling Shutter. And this week in spaceflight history is the 20th of July, 1976. It was the landing of Viking 1. Um, so Viking 1 was the first successful uh, Mars lander to actually land and then, you know, perform its mission. And actually it performed its mission really well. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But the landing was scheduled for July 4th. 1976, which is the U.S. bicentennial. Um, however, part of the cool thing about Viking, uh, the the Viking missions, was that they had an orbiter and a lander, and the orbiter could image the surface. And so they took a look at the initial selected landing site and decided it was too rocky. And so then they took some time off to reselect a new landing site, and they rescheduled the landing for uh, July 20th, which was actually the seventh anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, which is kind of cool. Those things kind of lined up as well as they did. So Viking 1, uh, the lander, um, had a really cool uh, setup. So it, it used three 
terminal descent engines, each of which had 18 nozzles. Yeah. Mm, that's a lot of nozzles. <laughs> it's, if you look at it, it kind of looks like a flower, like a, like a dandelion. Like there's just 18 nozzles sticking out. Why was there 18 nozzles? Was that for some kind of redundancy or what? No. So the idea was, um, this is a lander. It's not a rover. So it's going to land. And then most of its science is going to be done on the surface layer of Mars. They're not going to drill down uh, into the sublayers. So what they wanted to do was they wanted to be able to land without disturbing the surface. So by using 54 nozzles total, they were able to spread out the reactant mass, the, the engine exhaust, spread out over a large area. And by doing so, their calculations told them, and I don't know, I'm assuming that they were successful, but I don't think that there was any way to actually determine this empirically. But the calculations showed that they would um, heat the surface less than one degree Celsius and that they would disturb one millimeter of top surface maximum. And so obviously we didn't know what the nature of the Martian surface was. So I don't know if they understood how fine the regolith actually is, but their their intention was to disturb uh, less than one millimeter. And if you look at the photos, it, it, there's an awful lot of regolith sitting there. Um, they landed in the western part of Chrysi Planitia. And as soon as they landed, they started taking photos. So the first image began 25 seconds after touchdown. And then it took four minutes to completely expose uh, the photo. And I, I say expose in quotes because it actually used a rolling shutter. Uh, oh, I don't think that they called it a rolling shutter, but today we look at it and we go, oh yeah, I know that technique. That's a rolling shutter technique. So basically what happened was they scanned vertical bars through the image from left to right and beamed them up. So what's really cool about Viking is that when it landed, it immediately had an uplink to its orbital module. Um, and then the orbiter could uh, relay that data back to Earth. And that was a really, really good way of doing things um, because you don't have to get all the way home from the surface. You can um, do a high throughput up to the orbiter and then the orbiter can do a high throughput back to Earth. It had a backup uh, system. I don't even know if it was a, considered a backup, but it had a secondary system where it beamed data directly to Earth with a high gain antenna. Um, and that was a lower bit rate. They, they couldn't put as much data through. So what's really cool is it landed and it starts sending this data back up to the orbiter, even while it's extending its high gain antenna and getting it pointed in the right direction. So like, this was like, land, take a photo immediately. Don't wait for anything. Don't even wait until you're fully deployed, um, which is a pretty cool hustle. Hustle in that context mm -hmm. sounds like a, like a bad thing. But they, they really got their hustle on. And because they did that, the first image um, actually has some dust in it. So if you look at the photo um, on the left side of the image, um, there are a couple of vertical lines that are really light. And there's like a, a band that's really dark. And then the rest of the image looks pretty normal. And since this image not only sweeps through space, but also sweeps through time, you know, because this is a four minute long, quote unquote, exposure, those first couple of vertical lines still have dust that was kicked up by the landing engine. I think that's really cool. I think this is a, a really a, a photo that's deeper than it looks. You know, it has some like metadata in it. So why did they need to do a four minute exposure? Yeah. So I don't I don't know exactly what the reason was, but my suspicion is that it's a combination of two things. Um, first, 
digital camera technology at the time uh, was not great. Um, remember, this is 1976, and the Viking technology would have been developed before that. And then it also had to be, you know, space hardened and and all that good stuff. Um, so it, this is probably the best that they could do. But also, I'm guessing that the data return rate also had something to do with it. Because from what I understand, uh, they sent back each of these lines as they were scanning. Uh, instead of taking a photo, processing it, and then sending it all back like we do today. It seems like they were very eager to start transmitting. I mean, just as you said, as mm-hmm. soon as it was on the ground. Was that just because, I mean, they were afraid like something would break, like they were yeah. landing on Venus or something? Because uh, I can understand if you're landing on Venus, you want to start transmitting immediately <sighs> right. because you only have a couple minutes. But on Mars, you know, you can take your time, but they certainly did hustle. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the thought process was there. Somebody can tell us. I'd, I would love to find out. So yeah, uh, landed on the surface, started doing operations and actually uh, Viking one held the record uh, for quite a long time. It's it's mission lasted 2307 days or 2245 souls. So that's a very, very long time. Um, And that record was only beaten by curiosity um, back in 2010. Of course, Curiosity is still going, so that record is way blown, but still, that's a really, a really good record. So, uh, what killed Viking 1? Oh, it's a little bit embarrassing. Viking 1 was in good shape when we lost contact with it. What happened was the batteries were beginning to age, and so they wrote some new software that would better utilize the batteries. And when they sent up that software update, they accidentally overwrote some other software and that other software happened to be the antenna pointing software (laughs) so this poor thing is up there and all of a sudden it can't remember how to call home so presumably it lasted for it you know a certain amount of time after they lost contact with it and who knows maybe uh maybe it still is beating its record with curiosity even though it can't call home Uh, but you know i'm guessing it didn't last very long without the ability to talk to to humans and, and specifically to, to get those batteries fixed. But I mean, you know, maybe maybe that battery fix actually was successfully patched in and uh, maybe it was able to survive for a while. Yeah, so what they did was they, you know, tried to, I guess you could say, recontact the lander based on the presumed antenna position, but they were unsuccessful. So I'm just wondering how precise do you need to be in order to establish contact and how off could the antenna be? I mean, it could be pointing in the exact opposite direction for all you know, but wouldn't just getting it in the general direction be good enough to you know transmit something i'm just kind of surprised that that they were just completely unsuccessful yeah i don't know i mean the thing is that you can you can probably talk to it without a lot of accuracy but hearing back from it without that kind of accuracy is going to be a problem but i mean if they could talk to it they could transmit instructions to patch that problem and then presumably you know talk back yeah yeah presumably i don't know I don't know. It's a good question. Mm, crazy. Well, that's what happens when you log in as root, right? That's that. That's that. That, <laughs> that, that sounds like a Linux type of a thing that you would do, right? Like, whoops! I just you know completely uh, erased that directory. Kind of needed it. All right. So you ready for next week's clue? Yes. What is next week's clue? All right. Next week in 1927, the clue is: How do you fast from dawn to sunset in space? My guess is very easily because it's only what 40. It's like 43 minutes. So yeah. targeted snacking. Yeah. yeah that's obviously not the answer so i don't know so yeah next week in 1927 1927 okay what could that be how do you fast from dawn to sunset in space i don't know but if you think you know listeners give us a tweet with the hashtag this week sf and good luck good luck everybody (laughs) 
Crew Dragon for test flight arrives at Cape. So actually, this is kind of about Crew Dragon as well as Starliner, although Crew Dragon is what, you know, has arrived at the Cape. I kind of felt like we should do like a bit of an update on exactly where we stand on commercial crew because you know we keep hearing updates and obviously the dates change and change again and they just keep getting pushed back so this is kind of about where things are right now so um but as far as the crew dragon spacecraft uh yeah it has just arrived and it's coming from the plum brooks station in ohio now first of all i'm sure i've heard of it but i'm not familiar with plum brooks are you familiar with that name and this is where they have a giant vacuum chamber but i thought that was somewhere else this is apparently the largest vacuum testing chamber in the country but i thought that was somewhere else didn't we just recently talk about a giant testing facility where you seal it all up like a, I think it was a payload fairing for SpaceX. They oh, really? recently did a test and I don't remember Plumbrook's station in Ohio being mentioned. Apologies to anyone who lives in Ohio and I'm not familiar <laughs> with this. I'm sure it's a very important NASA facility, but I just didn't know it existed. But yeah, they have this giant vacuum chamber there where they lowered the whole capsule as well as the service module into the chamber and then they seal it up and then they do their testing. That's where it's coming from. Um, and now it is at uh, Kennedy Space Center where they will install sensors, parachutes and other stuff. So yeah, let's talk about the timetable here. So for both Dragon and Starliner, so the last official launch date was for later this year. Um, at this point, it's going to be sometime, I believe, in January or February of next year. So that is the current launch date. Well, NET at least, right? Yeah, the no earlier than for docking with station. Um, and they can't be any more specific than that because that's actually contingent on doing the launch to the station because that's actually what's going to happen. And I don't think I knew that at first. I thought they were just going to, you know, maybe like orbit the Earth a couple of times. But um, yeah, so there was this recent government accountability report which was not very flattering on the current state of things with SpaceX and Boeing. But uh, yeah, they referenced the NASA analysis, which says that if this first flight is completely successful, there is still a huge time where they have to do like a whole bunch of reviews. And so that could take up to a year. So they still have to pass the, re the actual review process. And that's following a successful launch. That will most likely take up to a year. So if it launches in January or February of next year, it might be till later next year or possibly sometime in early 2020. 20 when it will actually be certified. Yeah, that's how much it's been pushed back. Um, and I think that there was actually a, um, a speech being given by Gwen Shotwell, I think it was last year, where she said something like, you know, there's no way in hell we're going to launch any later than 2018. Um, and that's not going to happen. But I guess it's not surprising that this got pushed back because that's kind of what happens on a regular basis. With, Especially uh, when you're dealing with human spaceflight. Right, exactly. And I don't think that SpaceX was completely aware of, well, I mean, they are, but NASA, you know, they're very thorough, if nothing else. And so you have to pass these reviews and all that. Well, and I, I've heard that NASA internally thinks that Starliner is farther ahead in the process. They think it's a more mature vehicle at this point. And so they may well be spending some extra time making sure that Dragon is, you know, is ready to carry people which you know is not a bad thing like we want to you know we want everybody to be safe so i don't know it, it's an interesting problem i guess you could call it uh nasa does seem to have more confidence in starliner and indeed they have discussed actually using just a test launch to transport a person to transport a crew member to station although that first test is going to have two occupants anyway um which would be uh, a boeing test pilot as well as a nasa astronaut i don't think that they're planning on actually rotating any crew to station but now they are going to or at least they're possibly going to do that yeah that does seem to indicate a certain amount of confidence which is a bit surprising because uh the starliner has not yet done a pad abort test and they have run into some problems that have been brought up regarding the tumbling of the vehicle upon that abort so if that happens and that did 
ha- do you remember? I mean, that did happen to Dragon, right? Do you remember the paddleboard that they did in once they had jettisoned the service module? It started to tumble. Really? Yeah. Do you remember that? It like tumbled end over end because at first it, it was flying straight, but then once they separated from the service right, when, module, right? Once it separates, then it flips end over end and then mm-hmm. deploys its parachutes. I mean, that's the way it's supposed to work. Okay. Well, if that's how it's supposed to work, then I guess great. But there are some issues, or there are some concerns about tumbling with Starliner, and I don't know why those are more severe in this case, because uh, if tumbling is not an issue, then why would that have been brought up? Um, maybe it's uh, at a higher rate of spin. I don't know. I think the the issue with Starliner is potential tumbling when they don't want it to tumble, right? When it's supposed to be in an aerodynamic nose-first configuration, as opposed to getting ready to deploy those parachutes and wanting to face backwards. Perhaps it is like tumbling while still under thrust, which would be really bad. Well, even, even tumbling during a coast phase is not great if it's still supposed to be flying nose forward. I don't know. We we really don't know much about this, so we're we're both kind of speculating yeah. here. So yeah, there's that issue, and then there's also the heat shield, which apparently has to jettison before they deploy the parachutes, and I don't know if that's because the parachutes are located somewhere like underneath the heat shield. I s- nope. seriously yeah. doubt uh, that. I would be so, really, really shocked, yeah. So why the jettisoning of the heat shield? Because the worry is that they're, they're going to recontact the heat shield, but if you have already deployed airbags, there's no way that heat shield is going to, you know, catch back up with you. Um, so, so maybe it has to do with losing weight before you put tension on those lines, but those should be rated way over what you need. I don't know. They could deploy or jettison the heat shield after deploying airbags, just like Soyuz does. Is the configuration such that the airbags are slightly i mean they're like underneath the heat shield yes right so you have to deploy you have to jettison the heat shield before you touch down but why do you need to deploy the heat shield before you deploy the parachutes that's the question (laughs) i mean if you did jettison it before the parachutes then that wouldn't be a problem because the problem is with the heat shield uh, making contact with the parachutes so if you did it beforehand then that should solve the problem right i mean at least that's just my thinking oh yeah no good point uh you're oh yeah sure okay all right Okay. We answered our own question. That's pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. Well, so you deploy the parachutes, then you jettison the heat shield, and then there's this concern that it will make contact with the parachutes. Yes, so why not do it beforehand? Let's think about it this way. If the heat shield is falling slower than Starliner with parachutes deployed, then it's definitely going to fall slower than Starliner with parachutes not deployed. In that case, it might be hard to actually separate it from the vehicle. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, you you think maybe they could just wait until later in the sequence when the uh, parachutes weren't reefed and it was really falling slowly, but I don't know. Anyway, yeah, that's uh, so that's where Commercial Crew is uh, late 2019 for certification, but the first launch with people, apparently, will be happening as early as January of next year but we'll see if that date slips as well because uh i have some serious doubts so that's commercial crew for you and let's move on to uh our next story Uh, just a little one here there's not much to say but i thought this was interesting uh there's a company in china called land space which i've never heard of and they are building a rocket that uh, uses methane for its fuel a methalox engine and they want to launch this thing by 2020. So that you know, I mean, that's obviously another ambitious timetable. But this is pretty cool because uh, China pretty much is all solids, right? I mean, like when I think of all the various 
launch vehicles. It's just you know solid rocket booster on top of solid. Well, no, they they also they also have some hypergalls that they fly. Okay, yeah, and a couple of hypergalls. Okay, but mostly solid. Uh, this is a Beijing-based company, and they are developing a launch vehicle called Ju uh, Chui. I don't know the tones there, but Ju Chui Two or just a ZQ2. They're doing ground testing, or they want to have ground testing completed by 2019, and then, you know, launched by 2020, as I said. So that's pretty crazy. So what are the specs of this vehicle? And there is a little graphic you can look at, and there's also a video on YouTube. I think it's all in Chinese, but it does have subtitles. It doesn't say much, but I mean, you know, you can get some idea uh, of what this thing looks like and how it's going to work. This is a two-stage vehicle, 48.8 meters tall, 3.35 meters in diameter. So which apparently is about the same as their, um, or at least one version of their Long March. So it's pretty similar in capability to that. Um, it has a liftoff mass of 260 metric tons. It provides 268 tons of thrust, and it can get 4,000 kilograms to low Earth orbit or 2,000 kilograms to a 500 kilometer sun synchronous orbit. That's you know fairly capable, but like obviously not heavy lift. The primary claim here is that this can be mass produced and it can be done economically, and apparently it is reusable. But I see no evidence of that. I've watched the video. I've seen you know the little rendering. There's no legs. I don't know what they mean by reusable. Maybe they mean that in a way that I don't know means something completely different, but clearly not reusable. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the first SpaceX rockets weren't reusable either, so maybe they're working their way towards it. I don't know. The fact that it is a Methalox engine, I mean, that would indicate reusability because, you know, it burns clean and it has certain advantages, certainly over RP-1, maybe reusability at some point in the future, but certainly not on this ZQ-2 launch vehicle. And then there are larger stages that they're going for, which are just like heavier lift vehicles. From what I could find in English, because I'm guessing that there might be more in, in Chinese, um, they went with Methalox in order to uh, reduce costs cost because I guess methane is cheaper than RP-1. But obviously that's not a huge factor because the cost of fuel is a very small fraction of the overall cost of launching a launch vehicle. So I wonder why why they pointed that out. I would have thought reusability would have been something that they would have said, you know, that that's why they're doing this because they are claiming to be a reusable launch vehicle. And so they should claim, hey, this is why we're using methane. But uh, the Space News article, which I'm getting all this from, it does make some very good points. The cost of fuel is relatively small. You also have these these big issues with tanking because it's a lower density than RP-1. And mm. plus it has to be cryogenically chilled down because it's methane. So is that much of an advantage? I don't know. The main advantage to me has always been reusability. I mean, that's why we have it on you know the Raptor and, that, and that's why Blue Origin is developing it for the BE-4 engine. I don't see a reason to use methane otherwise. I don't know why you wouldn't either just go with RP-1 or just go with a Hydrolux engine. Like if you're you know making an upper stage and you want very high eyes peak beyond that i don't know why methane so it might just be because this is what the cool companies are doing and so maybe they want to do the same thing there's just some things that uh seem like they don't quite add up maybe they will once we see how the launch vehicle progresses all right let's do some short and sweet we just got one one little lonely short and sweet and what is it ben <laughs> all right so lc17 has been demolished very sad. Um, the launch towers at the historic and southernmost pad at Cape Canaveral have been torn down this week. The pad's last launch was Grail back in September of 2011, atop the soon-to-be-retired Delta II. Built in 1956 for testing the Thor missile, LC-17 eventually also supported the Thor Able Star, which made it to orbit in 1960. In 1997, the pad was the site of a very dramatic, rapid, unplanned disassembly, or RUD, uh, 
resulting in the loss of a Delta II shortly after liftoff. It, amazing footage. We need to put that in the show notes. The LC-17 site will now be used by Moon Express for testing of its lunar lander technology. And it, yeah, we were just talking about Thor Abelstar last week, and I, yep. or maybe the week before that, and I didn't Yeah, we should have put it together. Yeah, it did launch from LC-17, so. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, and so I wonder what Moon Express is going to be doing there specifically, because uh, they're testing their lunar lander, but they're not launching large rockets and stuff. It's just like, you know, the kind of stuff that Moon Express would do. So do you need a launch pad to do that or just you know a little bit of cleared out space i don't know i think that uh just having some space in a place where they're allowed to do short up and down flights i think that's important but i thought they already had that out in the mojave desert or something but <laughs> yeah i don't know okay stand by we're looking at it questions, comments, and correction burns. And this week we have just one, but a really cool one from Ron W., uh, who sent us an email clarifying about this whole Phantom Express thing that we were talking about, because we were speculating that maybe this has something to do with the fact that it is a covert government operation. Yeah, I I think that we were saying that it was an apt name if that's what it was going to do. But there was a real reason that we totally missed. Yeah, and so that reason is that that's just the name that Boeing gives to everything is Phantom something? Well, okay, so specifically, um, Boeing has Phantom Works, which is like Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, right? So it just makes sense that they're going to apply the phantom name to anything that comes out of phantom works well that's pretty straightforward i, I, yeah, I don't know, how I know we right? missed that yeah <laughs> we totally missed it i mean had they been working with lockheed martin right i guess it would have been like skunk express and then we'd be like oh okay that's because it's you know yeah skunk works yeah and then there's another correction he had for us about the ar-22 engine i don't know if i completely buy this but it's an interesting idea i'll just go ahead and read it verbatim he says also ar-22 has likely both flown and not flown to space before the actual motor is a likely already used RS-25 that's been updated slash modified to the new AR-22 configuration. Details are scarce, but they've mentioned minimal changes, including a new computer for engine control. So likely the engine has been to space, but not as an AR-22, which is really weird to me because all of the RS-25s that belong to the shuttle program have been sequestered off and earmarked for SLS. So the idea that one of them happened to make it out and get turned into an AR-22 is kind of weird. So my guess is that if this happened, it happened before the end of the shuttle program. What do you think, David? Possibly. I also didn't know that it was all of the engines, like every last one of them. There were quite a few of them, and maybe, yeah, like maybe they just pull one away and say, hey, can we borrow this? I mean, I don't know. Uh, Here we go. Okay. Sam in the chat's got a good, uh, good quote here. It was built using parts from both the company's and NASA's inventories of earlier versions of the SSME. That makes a heck of a lot of sense, is that these parts were pulled out much earlier than the end of the shuttle mission, right? So these are like RS-25s that they'd already upgraded and they're using older versions of the RS-25. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so these are ones that had not flown or were these just the older No, no, they have flown. Airjet Rocketdyne said it is providing two such engines with legacy shuttle flight experience using parts from both the company's and NASA's inventories of earlier versions of the SSME. So these are these are early engines from the shuttle program. That's really cool. Okay. So these were engines that were pulled out of rotation, and I guess those ones that were, were not or 
are not going to be repurposed for the SLS program. So they don't want those ones because those are the old ones that I guess are less efficient. They're, they're probably before they could throttle them up to 115 yeah. or 111 or whatever it was. All right, let's move on then to upcoming spaceflight events. Pretty slow week again. We just have one launch. So our one and only launch is a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Telstar 19 Vantage, which is a communication satellite built by Space Systems Laurel for a Canadian commercial satellite operator, uh, Telsat. This launch is happening from uh, Cape Canaveral on July 22nd. So the launch window is 5.50 to 09.50 UTC. So on the East Coast, that's like 2 to f- two to 6. So for me, that's like the night before. Yeah, so really, yeah, July 22nd or July 21st for all intents and purposes if you're... Yeah, not on the East Coast. Oh, uh, yeah, if you're up late, check that one out. And I guess that's it, huh? Yep, that is your upcoming spaceflight event. And with that, it is time to close out the show. So we will deorbit and cue the music, most of which is brought to you by Ronald Jenkins. Check him out at ronaldjenkins.com and some of which is brought to you by Tim Dodd, the Everyday Astronaut. If you liked this episode, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting Supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks to our $5 and up Patreon supporters in the ground control chat room listening to the show live. You can connect with us on Twitter and Reddit at Orbital Podcast. You can send questions and comments to info at theorbitalmechanics.com. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. So that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everyone.